You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive of three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, most of us have tried our hand at winning something in a claw machine, believing it to be a game of pure skill. But are the chances of you winning a little more out of your control than you think? The claw. <laughs> That's my best toy story. <laughs> yeah, just get out of the way now. An estimated 50 million people start their day the same way. With a crossword puzzle. What can these popular word games, though, tell us about the way our brains create memories? And why are they constantly needing to evolve? The COVID pandemic was the best thing to ever happen to the at-home exercise service Peloton until it wasn't. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. And Jay, before you kick it off with your first segment, um, they already know, but just a congratulations to our uh, our two Commute listener winners, Courtney Johnson and Kendra Arvon. They won our first ever Commute giveaway. And I'll tell you what, everybody was included, even people like a guy named Clark Davis, who went against the spirit of the contest, <laughs> tagging entities. He didn't tag people. He tagged things. Like, he tagged ESPN. So I guess we've got to be more strict in the future when we have giveaways. You can't do yeah. anything nice for anybody. The, the Commute the Podcast giveaway was not rigged. But do you know what is rigged? Claw machines. Ah, uh, hey, segue, my guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm the king of the segue on this program. Uh, but before we start, like, Dave, have you ever played a claw machine? Like, do you remember playing a claw machine? Won't shock you. Obsessed with them. When I was a kid, loved claw machines. We used to go to Pizza Hut every Friday night for a family dinner. And my mom would always give me a dollar and quarters to play the claw machine. Did you know it was rigged when you were a kid? Or did you suspect anything? Or you just kind of just went for it? When you play it as much as I did as a kid, you realize that sometimes the claw doesn't seem to grab as uh, as forcefully as it should. So you start to have some suspicions. Well, if you've tried the claw machine and failed and thought to yourself like, wow, this seemed totally rigged. I lined it up perfectly. Well, you are not crazy. Claw machines are rigged, but maybe not the way that you think. It's not really a closely guarded secret either. It's publicly available information that claw machines are specifically programmed to have a strong grip only part of the time. And machine owners can actually adjust the strength of the claw based on how many times within a set number of tries a claw will grip with the required strength to win a prize. So the owners here, Dave, essentially make their investment in the machine a guaranteed investment by literally setting the number of times someone can win a prize. You have to play the machine sometimes like dozens of times to win that prize. And this isn't isolated to one company. It's pretty much industry-wide. And the settings are not random. The settings are predetermined ahead of time. The owners just basically have to decide how fair they want to make the game. But there is balance here, though. Like, you don't want to totally shut players out because no one wants to play a game that they can't win. So an owner may choose to sacrifice initial profits to increase player success and then kind of dial it back after players have tasted success. So we know that states regulate gambling like slot machines. So why not claw machines? 
The answer is that most state regulations have a prize price threshold that claw machines fall under, meaning that if the prize you win falls under a set value, there are practically no regulations on how much you can rig the machine against the player. The only check to your power is the reputation of the machine itself. So Dave, I would imagine that like the one at your Pizza Hut probably gave you some success that kept you coming back. Yeah, Pizza Hut one was was decent. It had decent prizes. So, Dave, then the question generated by all this is, is this. If it's rigged and we know it's rigged, then why do people keep coming back to the claw? Why has this uh, game existed for decades? Phil Edwards at Vox in an article on this subject suggested a few reasons. And one that I found really interesting is that there is this whole social media trend of people posting their big claw machine wins. We're talking like when people win MacBooks and AirPods on sites like YouTube and TikTok. And since they never post their claw machine failures, this sort of gives off the impression that the machines are more winnable than they really are. Feelings of FOMO from seeing things happen online are very real and documented, and it encourages people to try to win themselves when they pass one of these machines in the mall. Ultimately, though, Dave, people still play these games for the same reason they play the lottery or they gamble on low possible returns. It's because the chance at winning something is one of the most addictive drugs we can feed our brains. Imagining winning the prize is a high of dopamine that amplifies as we watch the slot machine spin or we see the claw descend or we see the lottery numbers drawn. There really isn't a high like it, and it drives people to silence the logical part of their brain that tells them that the odds of winning are low. So maybe if you're planning on playing the claw machine, if you're thinking about hitting up Pizza Hut again, Dave, don't necessarily pay to expect to win. Just pay for the experience because you're probably not winning on your skill alone. I remember it was a big day when they actually changed out the machine. So for the longest time, it was the ever-popular stuffed animal claw machine. And then they switched it to the fake gold watch claw machine, which was extremely exciting. moving on up. Oh, they got two of those. Jay, we're probably a little bit different on claw machines. You don't seem that much of a claw machine guy, but there there are a lot of differences between you and I. Perhaps, though, one of the least surprising differences is where we individually stand on crossword puzzles. You love them. I'm indifferent about them. Yeah, I do crossword puzzles every single day. Um, I try to do them on paper. I don't really like doing them on the phone. Uh, And so I have a book uh, on my desk at work. I'm a teacher, so I have a classroom full of students. It sits open, and when I get some time, I add a couple words, and I'm sort of known as like the crossword puzzle guy. Known as the crossword puzzle guy. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Do you do them with a pin? Uh, I have before. Ah, you're not a real crossword puzzle guy, then. But um, I'm mostly a pencil guy because the pen is just too stressful. I don't like the smudges and stuff. So, yeah, I pretty much stick the pencil, but I have done it on pen before. Get get back to me when you turn into a pen guy. That's when you'll actually be a crossword puzzle man. (laughs) But, Jay, part of the reason, I think, that I don't like them is that I can never really figure them out, to be honest with you. Well, it comes down to the fact, and it's been established on this podcast before, is that you're very, like, you just want the end result of something like you don't like and i'm not saying you don't like to work for stuff that's not what i'm saying it's just you've said before like you go to the aquarium you just want to see the sharks you go to the zoo you just want to see the gorillas like you know you don't want to 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 
to you, a crossword is just like a tedious thing. Like you just want that payout. Yeah, Jay, and, and I'll be honest. I mean, you and my wife, who, who both like them, my wife is is much much more intelligent than I. You're probably slightly more intelligent than I, but 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 she especially went through a phase where she was really really into them. But but it's just never been a thing for me. But Jay, crossword puzzles have been around forever since at least the late 1800s. Believe it or not. And while they may be able to provide us with a key to understanding the way our memories work, they are also very complicated in nature. And not just complicated for people like me to complete, either. They are always simmering with aspects of a culture war as they try to evolve with the times. So let's get into it. In performing research for her book, Thinking Inside the Box, Adventures with Crosswords and the Puzzling People Who Can't Live Without Them, author Adrian Raphael became fascinated by the role that crossword puzzles played in the lives of her two grandfathers, Irv and Murray. Irv, a quiet introvert, former military engineer, had the same morning routine for years. Coffee, a roll, and a crossword puzzle. Irv was relentless in both his dedication to routine and his determination to solve crossword puzzles. Murray, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. Extroverted and spontaneous, Murray had been a successful businessman and a local politician. His morning routine consisted of coffee, oatmeal, And any combination of working on random projects, swimming, traveling, reading, you name it, Murray was trying it. One thing Murray did not like to do, however, were crossword puzzles. Irv died at 94, with signs of mental decline not coming on until he was close to death, while Murray died at age 91 and had suffered severe dementia for the last few years of his life. Raphael, initially assuming this family case study was all the evidence that she'd need to show the power of the crossword puzzle and its effect on our brain health, soon found that claims about crossword puzzles and mental cognition could be told in either direction in equally compelling ways. Some argued that they did help our brain function, while others argued, with similar amounts of research, that they didn't. One thing that her research did reveal, though, that could not be as easily debated, was that crossword puzzles did seem to have this unique ability, Jay, to showcase the complicated ways our brains process and store memory. Rather than proving to be a medicine for dementia, crosswords, it it ends up, bridge a gap that is hard to measure between our short-term and long-term memories. And Jay, various studies through the years help us to better understand this. The most famous one is the case of a patient known only as H.M. An operation in 1953 removed the hippocampus of H.M.'s brain, leaving him unable to form long-term memories. That J, paired with H.M.'s love for crossword puzzles, made him the perfect test subject for memory studies. And so naturally, the studies conducted on H.M. after the surgery focused on crossword puzzles, and the results were shocking. Even though H.M. could not consciously create new memories, he could do the same crossword over and over and actually improve on the puzzle every time. His brain was seemingly learning how to better complete the puzzle. And Jay, remember, he shouldn't have been able to do this. In fact, H.M. couldn't even explain to researchers how he knew the answers. He just did. Crossword puzzles had triggered a part of his brain that didn't work at any other time. His brain had almost been supercharged, but only while he was working on the puzzle. 
But Jay, the impact of crossword puzzles doesn't stop there. While medical researchers can now look at crossword puzzles for information on memory, societal researchers look at crosswords for another reason. How are they changing with our society? How are they evolving? The New York Times crossword puzzle, for example, the most famous and most played crossword puzzle in the world, is under constant pressure to adhere to what is acceptable in modern society. A good example of this can be seen in the history of current Times crossword editor, the legendary Will Shorts. Shorts, the individual responsible for keeping the puzzle going today, submitted a puzzle in the late 1970s that was rejected because of his use of a scandalous word. Jay, that word? Belly button. Oh, major scandal. Oh, I know. Oh, gross. (laughs) And while today's puzzles may not have an issue with belly button, issues with words and clues around sex, gender equity, and politics are constantly coming up. During the pandemic, the crossword community has had the same type of reckoning that we've had in the rest of American society, where we're looking at representation, we're looking at inclusion. Rebecca Nepris, co-host of the Crosswords podcast, told Katuka.com, hundreds of thousands of people are consuming this thing on a daily basis and paying for it. So you also have this responsibility to at least be aware of what it is you're feeding them. And while the appeal and unique power of the crossword puzzle remains strong today, these often messy puzzle decisions are only going to get messier. And Shorts, who has been credited with making the puzzle more relevant and fun through the years, is the one tasked with making the tough calls every day. An example, Jay, of the way that the types of clues and answers and crosswords have shifted through the years can be found here. In 1943, the Times crossword had this clue, author of a bestseller. The answer, Hitler. (laughs) Now, Hitler still appears in the Times crosswords today from time to time, but his last name hasn't been an answer since 1984. And the clue in 84 was much different than the clue in 43. In 84, it was history's blackest. (laughs) So, Jay, while crosswords can help us to better understand ourselves and the memory stuff is fascinating, they can also help us better understand our current society. One frustrating line at a time. So, I mean, is it time for you to give crossword puzzles another chance? I mean... Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) And especially until you start using it with a pen. Can I get you to at least, like, maybe play Wordle or something? You know, at least start there. Yeah, don't even get me started on Wordle. (laughs) I don't want to see your all's Wordle stuff anymore. And I hate when people do that kind of thing. Like, when they're like, I don't want to post your pictures of your kids. I don't care about your Wordle scores. Yeah, yeah David would be like, I don't care about your Wordle scores, and then he'll post the score of the Braves game. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so different. Not even comparable. So, Dave, the pandemic has changed our economy in pretty much every way. And for most businesses and products, it's kind of been this time of loss and then recovery from that loss. But there were also business winners in this pandemic era economy. One of the biggest winners of 2020, at least, was Peloton, which is an at-home exercise company that offers subscriptions to workout classes, exercise bikes that sync up to live online sessions, and a whole line of workout equipment to bring the benefits of a gym to your own home. So Peloton actually passed a billion dollars in quarterly sales during just the last three months of 2020, and it seemed like the sky was the limit. The stock soared by 400%, and Peloton showed no signs of slowing down. People were indoors, and they wanted to continue working out, and Peloton was the best option. 
Well, until it did slow down. In 2022, Peloton has been crashing down to earth. Supply chain issues set the company back pretty far on getting orders to consumers, but more importantly than that, demand has been greatly reduced over the past year. Peloton couldn't seem to get their bikes and treadmills out of the door fast enough in 2020, but now they have the opposite problem. They have the equipment, but they're having difficulty selling it. What makes business in a pandemic so complicated is that the rules on how long trends last sort of have uh, gone out the window. Pandemic surges are really strange and nuanced. So Dave, do you have like a favorite pandemic surge? Uh, There's been a lot of them where just like certain products really popped for like a month or two. Believe it or not, marbles have had this weird surge in price. Like you can get a a multicolored, like bigger marble, you know, the bigger ones, like the shooters. It's like 20 bucks on eBay. Like this is the kind of thing, like if you just went to walk in your neighborhood, if you went for a walk in your neighborhood, you'd find 10 of them just laying in the dirt. (laughs) So at first, you know, the pandemic, like marbles, uh, it grew Peloton. But now with supply chain issues and rising inflation, people aren't necessarily looking to drop thousands of dollars on an exercise bike like they would have two years ago. Peloton, as far as advertising goes, they had one of the most consistently effective marketing pushes in a long time in 2020. Their commercials were great and people really resonated with the product and their social media campaigns capitalized on the times but now you don't really see the marketing pushes like you used to see. So then why has their demand fallen so suddenly? Simon Siegel, an analyst at BMO Capital Markets, told Vox this. He said the primary question surrounding Peloton was, did the pandemic pull forward demand or did it expand the audience size? Based on all the data we had been seeing throughout the pandemic, it seemed like this was a pull forward. And the company, on the other hand, viewed this as an expansion and built accordingly. So in other words, Dave, the company misunderstood their surge in 2020. People who bought Pelotons in 2020 aren't going to buy a Peloton again within a year. And the wider base of people didn't necessarily want to get into Peloton for the first time behind that crowd. So now in 2022, the company has the products to match this hypothetical growth, but not the growth to match. There's too much supply and there's not enough demand. And on top of that, it's been a rough couple months in terms of public relations for Peloton. One is some safety concerns caused recalls on treadmills. Uh, Two, its annual revenue forecast was cut up to a billion dollars. And a PR nightmare that I'm just going to turn the floor over to you on, Dave. Yeah, so I don't watch this show, but I'm I'm wired into pop culture. And so uh, Sex and the City got rebooted, the famous HBO show. And when it came back... Uh, in the first episode, one of its uh, famous characters, a guy that had been on the show previously, had a heart attack and died <laughs> after riding a Peloton bike. And so Peloton, who had obviously given permission to Sex in the City to use the Peloton bike in the, in the episode, didn't know that it was going to be used in that way to trigger a heart attack. And so obviously they're scrambling, trying to figure out how do we respond to this. Meanwhile, their stock plunged 11% because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's not the Mr. Big uh, issue that, like, killed Peloton, but it did not help. Yeah, and to be fair, they came back with a funny parody commercial with featuring Mr. Big um, from Sex and the City, like that he was still alive, but still the damage had been done. 
And Jay, what's really crazy about the ad that Peloton came back with is they utilized the same actor from Sex of the City that played Mr. Big. He was in the commercial as well. Well, like two weeks after the commercial ran, some sexual assault allegations uh, were presented against him. And so it, it just kind of made the situation even yeah, worse. Just not a good look for Peloton. Just a lot of things happening at once. It's all starting to, starting to kind of stack up. Just to put it into reference, the market here peaked, the at-home exercise market peaked at $50 billion, but that market has now dropped to $10 billion uh, over the past couple years. But this just sort of highlights the issue of this crazy economy we're in right now, Dave. It's hard to identify what is a blip on the radar and then what is a legitimate market growth during the pandemic. Other pandemic darling companies like Zoom and DocuSign and Netflix and Nintendo, uh, they're trading at their lowest stock prices in two years after rising quickly in early 2020. Matching up a supply chain and a demand has always been hard, but now it's wildly unpredictable. People bought a lot of things in March of 2020 that they didn't sustain as the pandemic changed. And Peloton struggled to understand its brand in all of this, and as a result, has sort of become a victim of its own timing. As Siegel also told Vox, the pandemic was the best thing to happen to Peloton until it was the worst. So as far as for what's next for Peloton, well, it's pretty hard to predict. The company actually laid off 41% of its sales and marketing staff. They've closed several stores, uh, instituted a hiring freeze, raised their prices, and an employee recently told CNBC that, quote, morale is at an all-time low. But the company hasn't totally crumbled. The 6.2 million members of Peloton who use their equipment or just their digital classes are very loyal to the brand. A large brand like Nike or Apple could swoop in and buy Peloton to add to their exercise at-home market shares. But the at-home fitness market is pretty crowded, and Peloton is going to have to compete. But as it stands now, Peloton is part success story, part cautionary tale, and I'd say the rest of that story, it's got a long way to go. What's not good for Peloton is my lasting image of them is not the Sex in the City scene or one of the great commercials. It's the last time my wife and I went to... Uh, uh, a bigger city that's like three hours away from where we live. They have a Peloton store there at the city, uh, in the city. And uh, as we were walking past the store, no one was in it, and the, the mall was pretty busy, and the guy that was working there just had his head in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'll always remember the viral uh, meme that took off uh, of the lady in the commercial, uh, the Peloton commercial, who she was like, the, the way the commercial went is it was supposed to be like her uh, filming herself, like documenting her Peloton journey. Uh, but one of the shots, she looked like she was in like a hostage situation. Like she had like this really like, <laughs> like her smile was like really, uh, you know, like it just it didn't look those. like she was comfortable. Yeah. So Jay, in honor of crosswords, um, okay, six letters. Uh, and the clue is Dave doesn't care. Um, <laughs> Time's up. Wordle. Dave doesn't care about your wordle. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trapp. We'll see you next week. Wordle!